The talk this evening is about compassion and courage. From what I see in the various communities that I'm connected with and the various places of my own heart that, of course, I do my best to open to, I see that there's a growing sense of urgency uh, all around to help, to do what we can in our own families, our own communities, in the uh, workplaces that we are in, to do what we can to support the goodness of the world, to offer our gifts, however insignificant we may uh, think that they are, that we offer. We want to touch the world. Even if we can't articulate it that way, we want to touch the world with uh, goodness. We want to touch the world that's increasing in speed and increasing in complexity. We want to touch the world with simplicity, with a kind of open-hearted, simple kindness that we can give. Equally as strong, and all of you are a testimony to that, we have this deep sense of urgency to go within. We really need to have our times every day and every year to be quiet, to be simple, to just go within our own hearts and take a time of simplicity like this. Even if we don't feel that we get any sort of depth or insight out of it, we take some time to be as simple as we can, to uh, not harm to refrain from harming, which is huge. Even if we feel we can't do any big benefit in the world, just to refrain from harming is a huge thing in the world. There's a pastor that Steve and I uh, are close to, or have been close to in Maui. He's a pastor of the Hongwanji, a Buddhist church that kind of, um, that has a, a very small, really, congregation of the Buddhists left in Maui, in Hawaii. And he said uh, for his teaching that the best thing that he could impart to the people of his congregation was to refrain from harming. If that, there could be just that one thing, like following the precepts, like really taking heart in the precepts, then that would be a great thing for any individual or any group could do to refrain from harming. And we know that deeply when we take time to be in a place like this, where we've taken the precepts to refrain from harming any, any living being, because we see how when we do harm in the world through our speech and through our actions, we really connect with how it's harming our own hearts, how it's painful for ourselves to feel any kind of pain that we may project out into the world. We want to touch that place in ourselves, that inner landscape, with kindness as well. We have a deep need to do this, even though we don't articulate it we don't acknowledge it to ourselves so much. 
out loud or to others. And sometimes we even have to keep it to ourselves because others don't understand as much. That we need a time for solitude. We need a time to really feel the goodness, the kindness of our own hearts. To touch ourselves, our hearts with gentleness. And this is what we're doing here. So that we can bring that same kind of quality of care back into the world because we know how important it is for us to do that for ourselves. This takes a lot of compassion, whether we recognize, acknowledge it or not. This takes a lot of courage. Just before we came here, Steve and I took a month little more than a month, as Steve may have mentioned to you, to uh, have some time of solitude and deep rest at home where we could do some time of sitting every day, um, some time of working in the garden, some time of not being called outward so much. So we, we let people know and um, it, it really helped, you know, not to get as many emails. Of course, there were the urgent, important ones that we needed to attend to. But it really helped to not need to be called out so much into the world and really to see how people respected that so much and respected that, especially from people like ourselves who need to go inward a lot in order to have the strength and the balance and the understanding of our own pain so that we can take that understanding and listen to the pain of the world, the pain of individuals out there, and really be able to understand how to navigate that in one's own mind and heart. So we took that time and it was really wonderful to just um, be in the morning, wake up early, and do a sitting at 4.30 in the morning. I can have the energy to do that when I'm at home and to be able to then go for a walk and hear the first birds sing and to work in the garden and to plant things and vegetables and trees and plants that make people happy when they look at them because they're beautiful. And just to be quiet and to talk about the Dharma. We had a dear friend, Carol Wilson, there and it's one of the most precious things to do when you can take this time. And here we just, in, in the time that we've taken with you, also we talk about the Dharma. We talk about how it is in our hearts. That's the Dharma. How it really is, not idealistic views of how we think it should be in our hearts or in the world, but just how it is and being truthful honest about that, being really gentle with ourselves. And I noticed today, as each of you who saw me were speaking, there was a very deep sense of gentleness, a very deep sense of um, telling the truth in a really caring way about how it is in our hearts. Because when I hear you, when Steve hears you, or you hear me also, talk about how it is for myself, there's a sense of caring and mutual compassion that's there. So when you talk about how it is, how that kind of 
pain there is in our hearts in the world, there's something we deeply share. And there's that caring and compassion that comes out of that and the strength of really being courageous to face it, to gently accept with a really clear view the unfolding of the heart, the exposing of all the layers of the mind and heart that happen when we're in a place like this of seclusion and this kind of solitude. It really makes you appreciate all those beings in the world that just do this. You know, the, the monks and nuns of all different traditions, all different religious affiliations, uh, whether it be Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or uh, from the Jewish traditions, who do this kind of work. And I really remember them when I can't do it because there's someone, there are people like that who are realizing deeply the, the things that we can't realize so deeply every day because we're pulled out so much into the busyness and the complexity of the world. To experience a clear view of how it actually is as the layers of the heart are exposed, this is what we're doing together here, experiencing as best as we can as gently as we can, a clear view of how it is. These are the um, precursors to compassion arising, seeing it clearly. It takes a lot of courage to do that because we see the places that we get caught in, the places of the body, the places of emotion, the places of uh, the mind, the places of judging ourselves and others. It's painful. It's really painful to see all of that. But it's a pain that's going. It's not a pain that's coming. You know, we may feel as it, as it comes into view, but as one of our colleagues, Joseph Goldstein, says, it's really, if you can see it as it comes in, it comes into view, and it's up and out. And if we don't get caught in it, you know, and kind of put more glue to where it has been sticking, but we just let it come, let it go. Let it come, know it for what it is, impersonal, impermanent, unsatisfactory, let it go. It's really would do that of its own if we didn't add any more to it, really. This is the wisdom part of compassion. When we see that it can happen this way, we see all of that pain with more wisdom and compassion. So we have a clearer view of the places and conditions where there is a sense of freedom, when there is a sense of that it comes in to view, it's experienced for a while, and then it takes its place by doing the, uh, the thing of impermanence, it, it goes out. And we don't add anything more to it. We don't personalize it. We don't run stories around it that make it me or mine. We don't make it solid or permanent, like this is the way it is, and this is the way it always will be. It just comes and goes as everything else. 
So we have sense of freedom once in a while when we can see it with compassion, with courage, with this wisdom that can come in to view with it. So it takes this kind of sobering honesty, this unflinching courage, and a rare kind of caring about ourselves and the world because we can't separate ourselves from the world when we see this pain, this uh, what we call dukkha, uh, that many of you have heard. This is the Pali word for uh, suffering. When this suffering is seen, really there can be no separation between oneself and another. When we feel it in ourselves, we know it for others. And then when we see it in others, we can recognize, ah, this is the way it is sometimes in my own heart. Or this is the way it has been in my own heart when I was caught in it. So there's this willingness to open to all of this stuff, even if it's hard for us. I know many of you, and if not all of you, have had moments of that willingness to open to it because in some way, even if we don't know it quite so clearly yet, we know that opening to it all is for the good. And this is what compassion helps us to understand. Not because just because we can realize it in others, but oh, just opening to that view, we begin to see the deeper understanding that comes from it, how impermanent it all is, how impersonal it all is. We want to keep reminding you of these deeper understandings all throughout the retreat, even the beginning, like now. It's really painful to see the underpinnings of what we call my personality or this personality. It's really painful to see that it's made up of these particular habit patterns that are filled with greed or hatred or delusion or different conglomerations of any of those or all of those together. But it's what the practice is about and why we need a lot of compassion to be able to open to all of that, open to the unwholesome, which uh, also includes opening to the wholesome. We eat more easily see the strengths, the goodness of our own hearts when we open to it all. So when we come to practice, a lot of times uh, in the beginning of practice, and many of you are beyond this already, but we come and we think, oh, I want to open to all the bliss and all the beautiful parts of the spiritual life. But that's not quite a full view because when we have this intention to open, it means that we're going to open to it all. We're going to open to the beautiful as well as the unbeautiful, as the parts that we tend to resist. There's a saying, now I can't remember who it comes from, um, that enlightenment doesn't mean that we open to bodies of light, but it means making the darkness known, making the darkness known. Carl Jung says this. 
And so over and over again, we make, we make the darkness known. It's better to see it than not to see it. Because when it's not seen, all of these difficult underpinnings of the personality, it really runs our life. That's what's running the default setting that is not seen all the time. The delusion that can't see clearly. The greed that just wants without knowing it's wanting and goes after things that are not worthy of our effort, our thinking, our time. The aversion, the resistance, where we fight and we use our energy to push back and we actually lose a lot of energy that we could use for other things. So when we don't see this, it runs our life. When it's seen, there is a possibility of refraining from acting it out. There's a possibility of turning the mind in another direction if it's seen. So it's better seen than unseen. So all of this is why we need compassion, that gentleness and that courage to open to all of it. I'd like to quote Agnes Au as she wrote for the Shambhala Sun. It was an article about how to practice when these underlying uh, underpinnings of the personality are exposed, the patterns of life that get us into deep grief and trouble with ourselves and others. She says, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace, and in so doing, to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. The vividness of an unfiltered life. Now, I don't know about all of you, but I know at least one person who came today. Um, we were talking about seeing something that maybe hadn't been seen so clearly. And I told a story about my own uh, life and my own uh, practice where there was a time when, it, it wasn't that long ago, it was maybe two years ago or three years ago when I was doing a month long of intensive practice. And the mind began to open to things that hadn't been seen as clearly before. Of course, it was seen over and over again, but this time it was really clear and it was really, really painful to see it. It, was, it didn't have anything to do with the story. I called it Dukkha without an object, suffering without an object. It was just Dukkha. It was just suffering, existential suffering. And to be able to open to it really clearly, to have a vividness of the view of it. And when seeing that, the mind um, was, went through a little bit of scatteredness, went through a little bit of closing down, went through a little bit of reactivity, all of this happening very, very quickly in just nanoseconds. And then just to be able to see it, and then in subsequent moments to see more of relatively the same thing, I, the, I saw the mind get lighter. To be able to see it was a kind of joy in the mind a kind of joy that comes from relief 
to see it rather than to hide from it, rather than to cover it up with a kind of intellectual understanding, <clears throat> or to push away and to look towards something that might have been more pleasant. Because in the past, when those things would happen, I would chase after what was pleasant. The mind would look for something that was pleasant to, to chew on. But this time, it was just seeing it with vividness and having really a clear sense of the relief of seeing it, and then the lightness of mind that came from the relief. But this didn't happen without compassion. It didn't happen without courage, the courage to be able to see it so clearly and not to flinch, not to back down, not to give up on my practice because it was so difficult. So we experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. And this is what our practice is leading to, this unfiltered life. You could say that it is a life with wisdom. It's a life free from delusion. This is what we're freeing the mind and heart from, greed, hatred, and delusion. This is our, the unfiltered life of the trajectory of our practice. So through this process, we discover what the habitual forces of the mind and heart are, unflinchingly with sobering honesty, what they are, what creates this inner terrain, this personality made up of habit patterns. And we see them more impersonally. Sometimes we see them in a universal sense. Sometimes they're seen in an impersonal sense. Sometimes they're seen as unsatisfactory, as kind of with wisdom that this leads to nowhere. Sometimes they're seen in their impermanent sense. But they're seen, nevertheless, over and over again and in more and more freeing ways. So we see what creates this inner terrain and how that creates the outer terrain, how that creates the interpersonal relationships that we have with one another, how that creates our world, our personal world. And then we expand that even further and we see that this is how all these worlds coming together, your world and your world and this, all the worlds out there, how it makes up this big world we live in. And it's so, in a way, unfathomable. It's so chaotic, but it does have its rhyme and reason when we see deeply. So through this vividness, we notice the habitual forces that also create peace not just the ones that create disharmony, but those that cause harmony, that cause peace, that cause a, a sense of happiness inwardly and interpersonally within a society, in the world. And then we know what the path is. And maybe we can't um, heal the whole world or even our family or even one relationship. 
but there is some kind of courage that grows that we might be able to heal our own hearts or even maybe a part of it. And that would be huge. That could make a huge difference in the world. It comes from all sides. It comes from places that we can't even think of sometimes. It comes at times when it's most ripe, when all the conditions are ripe. It doesn't always happen in a retreat when we go home and carry out what we've learned in the retreat. Uh, then we carry this, this wisdom with us and growing, a growing sense of harmony happens in our life. Through our practice, we begin to recognize more and more when we come up against places that we recognize clearly, vividly as unwholesome, outwardly or inwardly, we begin to know how to relinquish that or how to harmonize that if we don't, need, we don't want to turn away from it. Maybe we need to do something to harmonize that place. Or maybe we see a place coming up within ourselves where we might say something or do something that could cause harm in the world or with another person. And we, we stop. We don't do that. And it doesn't always work, I know from experience. But a lot of times I can get that Dharma duct tape out and put it on my mouth, you know, before I do something that causes more turmoil in the world. <clears throat> so when we can recognize the places that are going to cause unrest, if we say or do something, we can step back or step away. And then we can step towards doing something that will cause uh, more peace or more harmony. And a lot of times that's just not saying or doing anything. You know, do no harm, as that minister in our, in our community says. Just doing no harm is huge. It doesn't mean that we have to go out thinking of all the right words to say or, you know, saving the world or feeding all the hungry. But just to stop is a very big thing. So we learn in this unfurling process where we see places that create unrest, distress, disharmony on an individual level, on a social level. From our Vipassana practice, we learn to see it as quickly as possible and to disarm, to not do anything about that. These become noticed, noticeable more and more vividly in our practice. And because of that, we need more compassion, we need more equanimity, we need more wisdom in order to continue to do this practice. We need more loving kindness in order to be more friendly towards those inward moments and, of course, the outward moments. And so, we see the places inside also that cause um, a, a sense of deep rest, a sense of harmony with one another, a sense of uh, happiness 
with oneself, in oneself, and with another. And we go towards that. You know, we start automatically thinking, what can I do? How can I transform this moment just with intention to go towards something that will be of help in this, in this moment, in this interaction, in this world? <clears throat> so that the wholesome patterns become reinforced and the unwholesome patterns don't get any more energy or they get less and less energy. And this is why it's so powerful to practice loving kindness because the unwholesome forces of hatred and harshness don't get energy or attachment, don't get as much energy. And the wholesome force of friendliness and connection those are the ones that get our energy. So greed, hatred, and delusion are not nourished through habit. The Buddha's teaching is about nurturing what creates a wholesome sense of harmony in oneself and in the world. This is number one. Number two, it's about disarming what's harmful. And those two are the fertile ground for wisdom to grow. If we do those two things, wisdom is more likely to grow from that. Nurturing what is wholesome and disarming what is unwholesome. It said that in different ways, it said that this is what the Buddha taught. One of the ways is he, he said, I taught one thing and one thing only. Uh, suffering and the end of suffering. Well, that means that sounds like two, but it's really one and the same. And how do we do that? How, we do that by developing wisdom. How do we develop wisdom? We nurture what's wholesome and we disarm what's unwholesome. And that brings the mind closer to opening to wisdom, to seeing wisdom. So without doing this quiet inner investigation, clearly recognizing the inner landscape, we can never hope to have a beneficial effect on the outer landscape of the world. We can only wish it to be true, but if, and we can only kind of, we can do the action, but if it's not coming from a deep place, it doesn't have that deep benefit to the world. We want to touch the world with kindness, with wisdom. Granted, we may not change the world radically, but in fact, transforming our own hearts is a possibility. We know that if you just, for those of you who have been in the practice a long time, sometimes for some of you a decade, two decades, and maybe more, Um, this practice and other practices of spirituality, you can see that by really being sincere, there has been some transformation. If you look back 30 years or 20 years, you see the mind and heart are different now. We relate to things, we can relate to things differently. So to do this practice takes courage and compassion. We may not change the whole world, but changing ourselves, this is the important thing. 
His Holiness, the Dalai Lama says, compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts, in our own minds. And that has an infinite outreach in the world. It has tremendous value. So usually, compassion is thought of in terms of helping or saving others. Facing the suffering in the world out there with courage and then acting to relieve it. And of course, this is true. But it's important to start with opening to that suffering in our own hearts, touching that truth in our own lives, and really being with it. A lot of times it's really difficult to face the suffering in the world because we haven't seen it, acknowledged it, known it for ourselves in our own hearts. When we see it in the world, we have maybe some blame, some judgment, some why can't it be otherwise, some idealistic view of how it could change through political action or social action, and indeed it can. But when we see it in ourselves, we can go out and do the work in the world with a lot more of a realistic view, not an idealistic view, but a realistic view from the first point, the first noble truth uh, that the Buddha expounded on of there is suffering in, in our hearts, in the world. There is the truth of suffering. And so can we first start with that, with ourselves? And so this is what we're doing here on retreat. We're really taking the time and the energy and the effort to go within, to see the pain in the body, the hunger, the illness when we don't feel well. People usually, um, there are people who come with chemical sensitivities. Um, This is just one retreat example, an example that happens in retreat. I have a little bit of chemical sensitivity which started years ago but I really didn't understand chemical sensitivity with um, scents and perfumes and all of that <clears throat> until I, I understood how painful it is in my own body when <clears throat> I'm overcome by something and the mind gets blurry and can't think and I feel like the bottom dropping out. And I never really understood how it was until I I experienced it. And I see that too in others, not just with chemical sensitivity, but with people who have very, who have a lot of strength in the body, who don't have many troubles in their own body. And then with people who have troubles, it's very difficult. It's, It's more challenging to understand that. Sometimes I feel that coming towards myself, that I have, I have to have a lot of um, help to keep my own body together, to keep going. And it's not easy to understand sometimes. But when I can understand it for myself, when I can understand pain in my own body, when I can understand illness in my own body, 
pain in my own heart, the aversion that comes in my own mind, not my mind, but the mind that, you know, has this habitual pattern, then it's easier for me to understand it in others. And so it's hard, but I'm really grateful when I'm able to see that in myself. So we experience pain in the body, pain in the mind and the heart, like holding on to how we think it should be, resentment, jealousy. We see the uncontrollability of the mind. This is really painful. These are some examples of the pain that we feel in practice deeply. We see the mind goes everywhere and there's no control about it. Someone said today, very deep insight actually, to see that the mind does this and there's no control over it. It just does what it wants. It goes what it, where it goes to, actually because of habit patterns. And we see, uh, we become familiar with how vulnerable this body and this mind really is. This is the unsatisfactoriness of life, dukkha, the vulnerability of all of life. We come to face that very clearly with compassion. All of this is hard to open to, but the mind and heart become stronger as it's touched. Sometimes the mind and heart come to places that are really difficult to open to. The fear sometimes, and in the past it was harder, now it's, there's more equanimity. The fear of my grandchildren and my children, and what will they face in their lives, <clears throat> knowing how it is today, and how it's changed so vastly from even 20 years ago. And how will it be for them? And uh, just the fear of anything that could happen in our world, anxiety, just to know it in my own mind helps me to open to it when any one of you or other people come to me and talk about their own fear or your own uh, anxiousness or how one can hold on to something for so long. Being the, there are three kind of Buddhist personality types, the greedy type, the aversive type, and the deluded type, and I'm definitely the greedy type, you know, the, the type that can hold on more. Um, sometimes we like to call it the sensual type because it's chasing after pleasant experience a lot. And <clears throat> more about the others later. So just understanding how that can be, just opening to it painfully, seeing it, but the compassion can take over more. The softness of heart that can open to things like this can be more powerful than the pain of it. The compassion can be more powerful than the pain. And that's something to watch in your own practice. When you open to certain things and you see that there is strength there, there's courage there, there's a, a gentleness there, that's just, there's a pliability of the mind just to open, just to stand back and to let it come forth, just to be with. That's compassion. And if you can just 
recognize, acknowledge that, even for a few nanomoments, and realize how powerful that is, you'll see that it's possible to be free. It's really possible to be free of that kind of pain. So compassion for others grows as we know it for ourselves. The mind and heart become more and more free from being caught in the pain and really um, feeling that one's body, mind, and spirit are standing very staunchly and clearly in compassion and not lost or not drowning in the suffering of what's happening because there's no resisting it, there's no denial of it, there's no overlaying a veneer of blame or um, self-defensiveness, there's no self-righteous indignation, there's no idealistic view of what should be happening in the moment. It's just an open acceptance of this moment is just as it is. And it's necessary to have that kind of realization, that clear, vivid view, actually in order to take action or to step back and not take any action. So I'm not talking about just being a doormat, but really being able to have a moment to see this clearly. So that brings the heart and mind closer to freedom. Because in the first place, we're free from that momentary suffering. We're free from the aversion to it, from the attachment to how we think it should be, free from delusion to um, you know, trying to overlay a veneer of something else or running away towards something that's more pleasant. So free momentarily of greed, hatred, and delusion because compassion is so strong. And this brings us closer to seeing the truth of life, seeing really how all things are, seeing clearly with wisdom, seeing how it's all so impersonal, how it's all so impermanent, how it's all so vulnerable or unsatisfactory, nothing to hang on to. The Buddha said, there is one thing, O monks, the not seeing of, which keeps us bound on this cycle, the not seeing of, and that is the noble truth of suffering. So getting off this cycle of suffering means that we have to open to it. It stands to reason that if we just continue to resist it, to fight it, to defend it, or to blame, others or to blame ourselves, it only adds more layers of delusion, more layers of things to try to figure out, to try to unfurl with our minds or um, scientifically or psychologically. That's all a big help, but it sometimes can get us tang more tangled. That's why we ask here, we we guide here to stay with the process of things. Try not to get caught in the content of what's happening, but just see the momentary thisness and thatness of life. When I've had to deal with people who are caught in anger or blaming or accusing, 
Um, of course, that can activate anxiety or anger in my own heart. And I've seen it many times, and I'm not free from that. My, my heart is still, it still has a path to purify uh, my heart. I've got and caught in cycles where I felt, you know, self-righteousness and the thickness of um, self-defensiveness and blame. So I'm still learning. But also, I've seen times when I could see clearly what was going on and then refuse to get caught in those defilements of my own heart. There were times, and I'm thinking about this one particular time, when um, there was this person that approached me very angry about um, something that had to do with the neighborhood we were living, we are living in. And she was yelling and screaming at me and accusing and blaming and not allowing me to say anything about um, maybe giving some another another point of view or offering some other facts. While she was doing this, I felt in myself that I wanted to push back or to, um, with angry words, or, you know, do something <laughs> radical, like slamming a door or something like that. Um, you know, I... I I didn't have the mind to punch her or anything, but (laughs) I was really getting close to it, I could say, truthfully. So I saw that really clearly in my own mind. And um, there were a lot of accusations that she made, and I really just tried to keep my mouth shut. But then she said, now I've said my piece, and I want you to say your piece. Tell me how you feel, da-da-da, about such and such and such. And in a very quiet voice, I said how I felt, just straight out. I said, this is the way I feel about it. I didn't want to say, I think it, I think it might cause more trouble, but this is the way I feel about it. And it lowered her tone of voice, first of all, and it really stopped her that I could, I could just say it in that, with that kind of voice. But believe me, it took everything to not scream it back. Uh, I, really, I really had to modulate what I was saying. You know, and I felt like I was trembling. And so there was a moment. I could feel those moments of like defilements coming up and saying, Kama, get her back, get her back, you know. But there were also moments, <laughs> I'm, I can be a real fighter, ask Steve. <laughs> but there were moments, really moments that were powerful and they weren't long and they weren't that, cl- that um, long and clear, but they were short and clear where I could see that She's suffering, and I'm suffering. I could really feel the universality of that, that we're both suffering here. And it's not about her, and it's not about me. It was just about this universal experience 
of suffering, of the vulnerability of the personality and the self and who we are, that we need to defend ourselves. We need to attack sometimes. And of course, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have boundaries. And we, when we need to speak out, when we need to speak loud, we need to do that. When we need to push back with our hands, we need to do that. So that's clear. But there's a lot we don't need to do. And we need to be clear about that also. But I could see between us the universality of that suffering. And it really just melted in the moment that there was she, there's her thing and there's my thing, her issue and my issue and the separateness of all of that. There was just the suffering that we're both feeling. We're both feeling anger. We're both feeling pain. We're both feeling that our boundaries have been stepped upon in some way. And um, we really need to kind of be clear and fight sometimes in order to take a stance. And in that moment, there was this kind of coming together, this spontaneous kind of compassion. I could say within myself that there was more of a softness that was happening in my heart. And there was more of an ability to say, okay, I can understand why you would feel this way without needing her to understand why I was feeling this way. I could just understand that. And maybe in the mix of things and that kind of vibration going out, maybe it could lead to something. I don't know. She still doesn't talk to me. so. But my heart goes out to, I've sent my heart and my words out to, to her a few times already. And um, so there's, there's the process. It's still a process. You know, we're, we're all in this together. And the moment that we can feel that, that we're all in this together, really try to see if the mind really has that compassion there. If the, because probably it does. If we can acknowledge it, if we can recognize it. And sometimes, if some, some of you who aren't into noting so much, actually noting it, you know, just saying, this is compassion in a daily life experience can really accentuate the situation within us. Seeing how it's so universal, it's so beyond the personal level. Sometimes from the universal view, we see the impersonal view. We see that it's not about me. It's not all wrapped around my issue. It's it melds into something bigger, something impersonal. It's said that the proximate cause for compassion to arise is the perception of suffering, the perception of dukkha. This is the proximate cause for compassion to arise. So I looked up the words in a dictionary of etymology. I looked up the word compassion. Where does it come from? It was really interesting because I had a view of the word passion before, but from this uh, dictionary of etymology, I had a different slant. It had a different slant on it. It comes from two words, com and passion, 
And calm means coming together, together or with. And passion meant enduring suffering. That was really different from what I thought passion was, you know, the passion of you have for life or for art or for music or for anything else. But it meant enduring suffering and as in the passion of Christ. Those were the words in this dictionary. So compassion is coming together with suffering, really letting the heart connect with it. And it's interesting that the proximate cause for compassion to arise is the perception of suffering. So in, the, in Pali, the word for compassion is karuna. And this means making the hearts of the good quiver when afflicted with sorrow or when it sees sorrow, either in oneself or others. And oftentimes this is what people feel. You know, when uh, the heart is open to suffering, we feel this quivering. And sometimes we think it's fear or closing down. But oftentimes, if we look carefully, it's just this actual physicality. I feel my own heart quiver when um, suffering is in view somehow. It's interesting when they did this scientific study of all these Tibetan monks who had practiced compassion. Each of the monks had to have compassion practice for 10,000 hours or more. And um, they hooked their physical brains up to these um, diodes that kind of measured what was happening in different parts of the brain. And when they were doing compassion practice, it showed that part of the brain, the physical brain, that was ready to act, ready to do something, ready to... um, to uh, alleviate that suffering. It didn't show about alleviating the suffering, but to act upon something, to take action. That was a part of the brain that kind of lit up in this brain scan that they did. And so this is the quivering of the heart. So check to see a lot of times it's not about closing down or being afraid. It's about seeing noticing the energy that wants to help, that wants to do something to alleviate the suffering, the natural readiness to help. It's a powerful support to do that. Um, So it's to help others and to help ourselves, of course. We can't lose that view. So it's not just about helping others in the world. It's about helping ourselves as well. So one time recently, I was practicing. And there is more pain in the body. I mean, this might be bad news for some of you. (laughs) But there's more equanimity, too in the heart and the mind that can stand up to the pain. When I'm sitting with all of you, there's a lot of pain in the body. 
but there's a lot more ability to be with it as the years have gone by. So I wouldn't say that I'm sitting here, you see the stillness, but it's not exactly pain-free. Um, but this time I was practicing, it seemed like I dropped into another level of pain in the body, dukkha, and it was unrelenting for a long, long time. And of course, the heat of Burma didn't make it um, easier, and other things that are there, you know, practicing long periods of time. And what helped me uh, to, to just endure it, the enduring part of compassion, was I thought about how my own teachers have had such compassion to offer what they thought could be of help to myself and others in this practice. And sometimes to be fierce in their offering of help, to be so fiercely compassionate, to point out the defilements that were being known, maybe see more clearly by them, but not to myself. So being having that pointed out. And to be so grateful for that compassion that was shown to me. And then there was this time when I was just in Burma, um, this was the year before last, when <clears throat> I spontaneously thought about how their teachers, Mahasi Seda was a teacher to Upandita and also to Anagarika Munindra, two of my teachers, and how he must have been so compassionate to them. Then I don't know the teacher of Mahasi Seodao. I've heard his name, but that's about all. And how compassionate he was to Mahasi Seodao, our grandfather teacher. And then on and on and on, as Steve mentioned last night, uh, about having faith and having taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, and just having so much uh, gratitude for the Sangha as it was handed down. And so with all that compassion being handed down, could I have compassion for this pain in the body, for this pain in the heart? That could I open to that? And it helps when I can't open to my own compassion to open to the compassion that could be all around me. The near enemy of compassion is despair. It's an unhealthy grief, a pity for oneself or others, where you're drowning in the suffering. It can seem like compassion because of its softness, but it's too soft. It's more like being lost in it or being kind of melted in a puddle of kind of the heart where you can't do anything about your own suffering or the suffering of others. There's an old Asian story about uh, somebody that was caught in quicksand and someone wants to help that person that's in quicksand and instead of standing on firm ground, jumps in the quicksand to help that person and of course drowns or gets kind of suffocated in that quicksand with that person. This is compassion without wisdom. (laughs) 
This is despair. You know, somebody's drowning in despair and you jump in with them and you commiserate with that person and you, you know, find yourself in despair with that person and you don't have any strength at all. You're not standing on any firm ground at all to help that person. But if you can be calm in the storm, if you can be like the strength of, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, if there's one calm person on a boat that's full of chaotic people, you can do a lot of help with others. So with this near enemy, we can be so bogged down in the painful conditions of another person's life or our own life that we're no help to anybody. And we can become so identified with that sense of self that's uh, hurting that it, it becomes our identity, our identity of being a desperate person or a person that's... Um, you know, lost in whatever, unhealthy mind states all the time. We lead into life with our wounds, as one of our um, current psychologists says. And as William Stafford says in one of his poems, we turn these kind of um, identity of our weaknesses, we turn them into pearls which take on a luster and they accumulate as decoration or badges. We develop such a sense of self around them that they weigh us down. So this is the near enemy. It's called the near enemy because sometimes something so near, we can't see it so clearly. The far enemy is cruelty. It's seen more clearly. It's a harshness with others. It's a harshness with ourselves. And most of the time in, in practice, what I see with myself and others is we become so hard on ourselves. We feel self-blame and guilt and feeling ashamed because we think we're not doing the practice right or we can't be mindful as much as we think we should be mindful. And we're very harsh on ourselves. This is cruelty, the far enemy. And this harshness on ourselves, we, we can project into the world on others as well. So it's important to see the near and the far enemy of compassion, this cruelty or this kind of unhealthy grief. We, in the world, we strike back when we feel this uh, harshness or aggression. We can strike back when we don't see it clearly. But when we see it clearly, we dim our lights a little bit. You know, we don't need to, like, need to show ourselves in the world so much or blind others so much with whatever we're putting out there. There's a beautiful story that I just read. It actually comes from Sharon's most recent book. Um, it's called The Kindness Handbook. And this is a story um, that Martin Luther King tells. It's about his driving on a highway one time with his brother. 
And he said, I think I mentioned before that some time ago my brother and I were driving one evening to Tennessee, Chattanooga from Atlanta. He was driving the car. For some reason, the drivers were discourteous that night. They didn't dim their lights. Hardly any driver passed by dimmed his lights. And I remember vividly my brother looked over and in a tone of anger said, I know what I'm going to do. The next car that comes along and refuses to dim his lights, I'm going to fail to dim my lights and pour them on with all of their power. And I looked at him right quick and said, Oh no, don't do that. Somebody got to have some sense on this highway. Somebody must have some sense enough to dim the lights. And that is a trouble, isn't it? That, as all of the civilizations of the world move up the highway of history, so many civilizations, having looked at other civilizations that refused to dim the lights, and they decided to refuse to dim their lights. And Toynbee says that out of the 22 civilizations in the junk heap of destruction, it is because civilizations fail to have enough sense to dim their lights that we will all end up destroyed because nobody has any sense on this highway of history. Somewhere, somebody got to have some sense. We must see that force begets force, hate begets hate, toughness begets toughness, and it is all a descending spiral ultimately ending in destruction for all and everyone. Somebody must have some sense and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate and the chain of evil in the universe. And you do that with love. And so this is the love that's compassion, the compassion that turns towards the suffering in ourselves and in others and is willing to dim the lights of hatred, to dim the lights of cruelty, to stop falling into the kind of unhealthy grief which leaves us weak, not able to be able to have the clarity and the power to do something beneficial in the world. So compassion and courage gives us this ability to let the world unfold and be clear about it, to see the choices that we have and to go towards the choice that brings benefit in the world and to disarm that habitual kind of unconscious choice to go towards what causes harm in the world, to be able to let go with grace that all that um, we hold tightly to because holding tightly to something can also cause harm. So can we let go and find the place of peace and rest to know how to have the courage and compassion to do that? This is our practice. So let's sit for a moment and just let the words dissolve and stay with your own heart. <clears throat> 